0: I turn to Jonah chapter four has been said this is a part of the story we usually don't hear about. I mean, most children's books and children's Bibles and, you know, we hear about Jonah being sent to Nineveh and he didn't want to go. And so he gets in the boat to go to Tarshish. and God sends the storm and they throw him overboard and the fish comes and swallows Jonah. And he has a little little come to Jesus meeting in the belly of the fish. And then he gets spit up on the beach and he says, OK, God, I'll go to Nineveh. he preaches and they believe End of story. Kind of where we finish it. But chapter 4 is my favorite chapter in the whole book. And there is so much that chapter 4 shows us. The first three chapters have really showed us how powerful God is, right? I mean, God is sending stuff left and right in this story. He's sending storms. He's sending fish. He's sending, you know, hot winds and, and plants and worms. God is constantly sending stuff. He changes the heart of a whole city that's so wicked and so violent. We see that God is powerful, but in chapter 4, we learn another attribute of God, that God is patient. We're going to be thinking about that today. Chapter 3 ends on such a triumphant note, and then you get to chapter 4, and it's this unexpected melancholy. As Jonah doesn't celebrate his successful mission, he pouts about his successful mission. So let's read the story in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So finally, in chapter 4, we get some insight into this internal argument that Jonah's been having with God all along. And, and Jonah's pouting and anger reveals a deeper twofold problem within Jonah. It's a problem that we all deal with today at times. And so I want us to look at Jonah's problem and ours and then marvel at God's patience. So first let's talk about Jonah's problem, which is really the same problem that we tend to deal with as well. And it's a twofold problem. First, it's a theological problem. Jonah struggles with this common theological dilemma. How can the Lord be a God of justice and allow evil to go unpunished? That's what he's wrestling with. How can Israel's covenant God bless their mortal enemies? I mean, This was the reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He tells us in this chapter, it's not because he was afraid for his life. It's because he was afraid that God was going to be merciful on the people of Nineveh. Jonah didn't want that. Jonah thought, well, if I don't go and tell them, then they won't know to repent and God will destroy them. That's why he didn't go. And this has been a common struggle for the people of God throughout the centuries and still today. In most places around the world, this is the greatest theological struggle. People struggle when they see good people oppressed, persecuted, suffering injustice at the hands of the prosperous wicked. People wrestle with that. Why? We say it this way, why do bad things happen to good people while good things keep on happening to bad people? And tragic events like this past week just magnify that question in our mind. Why do things like that happen to good people like this when so much evil in the world just seems to get away scot-free? The psalmists often decried this, decry this disparity. Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, "...for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens." They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. This is very very well it may have been on Jonah's heart and mind as he thought about the people of Nineveh. Or Psalm 94.3 asked the question, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? How long, O Lord, are you going to put up with the wicked and let them keep on getting away with what they're getting away with? Now, of course, you read the Bible, there are even more passages that explain that, that even the wicked someday were going to reap what they sow. That eventually they will, they will have their punishment unless they repent of their ways. Now, in a week like this, this is still a question that we struggle with. Why do bad things happen to good people, Lord, and why do the wicked seem to have it easy? But there's another question, sort of the flip of that question that I think we in 21st century America and really in all the western world that we tend to struggle with even more than that one because the truth is even though that tragedy does still strike us, we live in the most prosperous culture and nation in human history and on a daily basis most of us experience very little if any oppression or persecution or injustice we have it pretty easy by and large and so we in this country, we in western culture today struggle with The opposite idea, the idea that God does punish the wicked. Our culture struggles with the idea that God has wrath, that God judges. We we struggle with reconciling a God of mercy and a God of justice. How can a God of love also be a God of wrath? You see how it's kind of turned on its head for us? Most cultures of the world where people live under constant injustice and oppression, they wonder... Why do the wicked get away with it? But in our culture, the question is, Lord, how can you send anybody to hell? Lord, how can you punish or judge anybody? Aren't you a God of love? How can can you have wrath? And this struggle has led even churches to scrub any reference to God's wrath, such as the line in the song, In Christ Alone. We sing that song by the Gettys. In Christ alone, and there's a line that says, And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Which is biblical, which is exactly what happened on the cross. But they replaced that with the love of God was magnified. You see, they've replaced the wrath of God in the song with the love of God as if the two are mutually exclusive. Guess what? They're not. And we're going to look at how to resolve this issue in a few minutes. But first, I want us to notice that Jonah's theological problem then led to a spiritual problem. This is where we are as a country. This is where we are as a society. Our intellectual doubts affect our spiritual commitments and desires and identity. Whenever we say, God, I'm only going to serve you if you give me X, then essentially we've made X, whatever that is, we have made that our true God. Because that is the thing that we love. That is the thing that we trust and we rest in, not the Lord God. Jonah was willing to discard his relationship with God unless God did what Jonah wanted. That's what's happening here. As a missionary, you would think that Jonah would be rejoicing that Nineveh believed his message and repented of their ways. They had taken the first step of faith. You'd think that Jonah would be poised and ready to then go to them and help walk with them and take them further in their faith as they repented of their evil ways, but that's not what he did. And can you imagine sharing the gospel with somebody that you knew was lost and then saying, now, you don't want to pray and receive Christ, do you? And they said, yes, I do. I want to pray right now and receive Christ. And then you'd be upset about it. Could you imagine seeing someone get baptized and being bitter in your heart about it? and not wanting to help them take the next steps of faith, you know, not telling them about church membership or about baptism or about reading their Bible or praying or sharing their faith, but instead walking away pouting because they received Christ? That's exactly what Jonah does. Now, we may think, well, that's far-fetched. But whenever we care for our own comforts, security, and power more than we do the good and the salvation of others, we're guilty of the same sin. We may not be as blatant about it as Jonah was, but there are so many other ways that we can put ourselves before God and other people. And it's sad to see Jonah's attitude toward the people of Nineveh hasn't changed. After all that Jonah's Jonah's gone through, after all that he's experienced, his heart is still hard. He reminds us that there's a big difference between knowing about the grace of God and experiencing the grace of God Transform your heart and your mind. He knew about it, But he still hadn't yet been transformed by his experience with God's grace. Despite all of Jonah's problems with inner turmoil, his, his angry and his pouting attitude, God is still patient with Jonah. Just as God was patient with Nineveh. And this truly is one of the remarkable parts of the story. Yes, God demonstrates His power in this short little book. But even more than that, what amazes me is that God demonstrates His patience. God's patience. And we first see God's patience in this book with Nineveh. He's patient with Nineveh. Despite their wickedness, God was willing to give them a 40-day period of grace. He was willing to give them a 40-day head start. To be able to come to their senses and repent of their sins. Change their ways. And when they did, when they showed those signs of remorse and repentance, God relented from sending calamity. Jonah himself confessed. He knew that God is a compassionate, gracious God, abounding in steadfast love, slow to get angry, relenting from sending calamity. When Jonah said that, he was actually quoting... Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Now, in Exodus chapter 34, you may remember the story. Moses asks to see God's glory. Remember that? He wants to see the glory of God. And God basically says, Moses, you can't see my glory. It would overwhelm and kill you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the, this little cleft in the side of a rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by. And after I pass by, I'm going to remove my hand so you can see where I was. So basically... God says, Moses, all you can see is the backside of my glory. All you can see is the after effects of my glory. If you see my full glory, it would would kill you. And as God passes by, this is what He says. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding In love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Notice when Jonah quotes this back to God, you know, almost as like, you know, evidence in a court case against God, you know, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love, you relent from sending calamity. What part does Jonah purposefully leave out? The part that says, yet, he does not allow wickedness to go unpunished. Jonah conveniently doesn't quote that. And so Jonah committed the age-old heresy of divorcing God's justice from God's love. God's wrath from God's Grace, Creating this overly simplistic picture of God as someone who only loves people and never judges evil. That's the God that our culture holds up. That God. But the truth of the Bible is that God is a God of love and justice. They are equally part of God's character. You can't have one without the other. In fact, I would say God is just precisely because He is loving. Because what kind of loving God would not want to rid His world of evil and injustice and sin and wickedness and all those things that hurt the people that He loves? Parents, if there's something going on near your child or in your home that's dangerous, that you think is going to hurt your child, what's the loving thing to do? To get rid of it. You have wrath as a parent toward anything that would harm your child. The same thing should be true of spouses a husband for his wife, a wife for her husband. We should hate those things that cause harm to those we love. That is God's wrath. Jonah described God as compassionate. Look again at verses 10 and 11, though. But the Lord said, You have been concerned. That that word there is compassion. You have had compassion for this vine. So you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not have compassion for that great city? That's the same Hebrew word there that Jonah uses up there to describe the compassion of God. God uses that same word to compare his compassion to Jonah's compassion as Ben said for a plant. Now, the root of the Hebrew word that's translated compassion or concern has to do with with joining something or attaching with something by affinity. This idea of joining or attaching is the root word there. And that root word is also used in Hebrew words for the word wall. for, For things that surround and that protect what you are concerned about. So, compassion by its very nature, is protective concern. And God says to Jonah, you weep over plants, but my compassion, my heart is attached to people. I have protective concern for people. You know, we don't worship some stoic Greek God. God's love is not some dispassionate, detached benevolence. His heart is attached to our little planet. And to we rebellious, broken people, His heart longs for us. It breaks for us. You don't think that God Himself has been weeping this week with this community? He has. God suffers with His people. Our brokenness wounds Him. Which is why Genesis 6-6, as God looked at the wickedness of people, it says that His heart was filled with pain. It's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's why the Bible says repeatedly that He had compassion for the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. God's compassion isn't abstract. It's concrete. God's compassion isn't just an attitude. It's demonstrated in actions. And it is highly relational. God's love and God's justice flow out of His relationship with those people created in His image. In verse 11... We see God's patience and compassion, even in how He describes the people of Nineveh. He says that they can't tell their right from their left. In other words, God understood that they were spiritually blind. They were lost. They had no clue about the source of their problems or about what solutions to turn to. Could we not say the same thing about our culture? I mean whether you're talking about the rampant immorality that's celebrated in our music and movies, the the fallout of the sexual revolution, transgender ideology, a, a near religious fanaticism about the environment, abortion, drug addiction, alcoholism, racism, tribalism, and the complete lack of civility when discussing any of these things, our society has lost its way. People don't know their left hand from their right hand anymore. And God... Looked at Nineveh in that situation and had compassion and patience. Shouldn't we have the same compassion and patience for those around us? But we have to balance that with justice we can also at the same time not ignore God's wrath because the fact is, though God understood how they were, they didn't know their left from the right, though God was patient with them, the fact that God was going to destroy them shows that ignorance is no excuse for evil. Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law of God. Now, people love to point out how Jesus was all about love and forgiveness. Exactly! And when Jesus was dying on the cross, what did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now when Jesus said, for they know not what they do, that ignorance was not an excuse, was it? Because Jesus still said, what? Forgive them. How can you forgive someone if they're not guilty of something? Yes, the culture around us is lost. In spiritual darkness, yes, they are confused. And yes, we should have pity upon them and have compassion and patience with them. But make no mistake, they still will face the wrath of God unless we tell them the good news and they repent. The love of God is neither an excusing love nor a harshly condemning love. It is a compassionate, generous, forgiving love. He is completely good, meaning that he is infinitely loving and wants to forgive. But He's also infinitely holy and will never let sin go unpunished. If God overlooked evil, if He just turned a blind eye to it, He wouldn't be good. But if God just let everybody perish in their sin, He also wouldn't be good. So, how does God resolve this dilemma? How can God be both loving and punish wickedness? It was a mystery to Jonah. He couldn't resolve this. It was a mystery to Moses. But remember, Moses only saw the backside of God's glory. But guess what? We have seen His glory in its fullness. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what John 1.14 says. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His what? We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. He has grace and truth. The truth that God is holy and we are sinners, but the grace to do something about it. They are not mutually exclusive. And on the cross, God is infinitely just because he punished all of our sin there. And on the cross, he is infinitely loving because he took that punishment on himself. God's love and His justice cooperate fully on the cross to punish our sin and provide for our salvation. Amen? Amen. That's the good news. Paul said it this way in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, in His patience... He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. You see that? God is both just and justifier. He is patient with sinners, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that is why God sent Jesus. And that is why God sent Jonah. And that is why God has sent you and me to tell sinners about the coming judgment, but that God has provided a way of salvation if they believe. Which brings us to God's patience with Jonah and with us for our failure to carry that message to others with the burden and the urgency and the compassion that it deserves. We see God's patience with Jonah God has been working on Jonah really throughout the book. In chapter 2, Jonah learned that he deserved judgment, just like the pagans do, and he was spared by God's mercy. Sadly, that lesson doesn't seem to have stuck. He's like the ungrateful servant, really. Remember the parable Jesus taught about the ungrateful servant? The guy owed more money than he could ever pay back to his master, and and, and his master had every right to throw him in jail for the rest of his life, and, and so he begged and pleaded for mercy, and the master forgave him all of his debt. Well, then, a fellow... Worker, a fellow servant comes up to this newly forgiven servant and says, you know, I owe you, you know, like, a, you know, five bucks. You know, it wasn't much, but I don't have it right now. Can I pay tomorrow? And the guy says, nope, you don't have it right now. You're going to jail. He had just experienced all this mercy and couldn't extend even a little bit to someone else. That's Jonah. He's got this inner struggle, this war between the old Jonah and this new Jonah that was sort of born again on that beach, but is slowly maturing. He's just not quite getting it. And God knows this. Just as God knows us inside and out, and yet still loves us, and is so patient with us, sort of like the prodigal father was with his two sons, remember? He was patient with the son that asked for his inheritance and ran away to spend it in wild living. But he was also patient with his self-righteous son who didn't show the appreciation that he should have to his dad. And so we see God's patience with Jonah and with us because God listened to Jonah. That's what we see in the first four verses. See, Jonah prays twice in this book. Chapter 2 was the whole prayer that Jonah had. And that first prayer, he prayed his best prayer in the worst place, right? He was in the belly of a fish. But here Jonah prays his worst prayer in the best place, where God is actively at work changing people's hearts. His first prayer came from a place of brokenness, but here it comes from a heart of bitterness. In the first prayer, he prayed for his life, but now Jonah prays for his death. But guess what? God heard both prayers. God is listening to Jonah even here as different as those prayers were both prayers came from an honest heart that was actually seeking God and listen to me God has promised to always hear the prayers of a heart that is earnestly seeking him even if the content of our prayers are wrong and are not in tune with God's heart which is why I'm so thankful that sometimes God says no when he answers my prayers amen amen. I mean, God knows best, and He knows sometimes that the best for me isn't what I'm asking for. He's not obligated to give us anything that we ask. We had a terrible tragedy tragedy in our community. Once again, it feels like that we have had more than our fair share. And this week I got to pray with people who were hurt and angry and confused. Let me be honest with you, I struggled with them in my prayer. I struggle with the question of why. And it's in times like these that we need to have honest conversations with God. Sometimes sometimes I have to work out my theology with fear and trembling in, in honest prayer before God. Because if we're honestly seeking Him and we honestly want to know His truth, guess what? God is a big enough and gracious enough God to handle our prayers with all of their questions, and all of their doubts, and all of their hurt feelings. God will always patiently listen to our hurting hearts. Secondly, God not only listened to Jonah, but God comforted Jonah. That's what we see in verses 5-8. through For the second time in this story, Jonah has walked away from the city that God sent him to. But this time, instead of fleeing to Tarshish, he goes up on a hill outside the city and he sits down to witness its condemnation. Again, like that elder brother in Jesus' parable. He's outside the city. He can't bring himself to go inside with these people who were lost and now have been found, who are dead and are now alive, and celebrate with them. He just can't do it. And now because of Jonah's stubborn self-righteousness, he's landed himself alone in the hot sun. He is suffering because of his own choices, right? Yet even here, we see God's patience and compassion. He caused a plant to grow up and give Jonah some shade. And you can imagine Jonah just saying, Finally, something's starting to go right. Finally. Jonah's happy. Very happy about the plant. But the next morning, God sent a worm to kill the plant. He sent dry desert winds to work with that hot sun to make Jonah even more miserable than he had been before. And you can almost hear Jonah just saying, Unbelievable. On top of everything else, now this? Really, God? Why can't I ever catch a break? You can just imagine Jonah saying that. This is an example of God's tough love, that severe mercy we talked about a few weeks ago. And God does all of this to prepare Jonah's heart for one final, logical, yet brief conversation. You know, parents, we discipline our children out of love, right? Not because we're mean, not because we want to... Make them miserable. We do it out of love. And so Jonah is being disciplined by the love of God. God loved Jonah too much to leave him undisturbed in his bad attitude. God sent a storm, a fish, a plant, a worm. He turned up the heat. All to remind Jonah what it was like to be lost. Jonah had forgotten what it was like to be without God. To be hopeless and helpless and miserable. God loved Jonah the way he was, but he loved Jonah too much to leave him that way. And the same is true for us. God comforts us in our trouble, but sometimes God has to trouble us in our comfort, doesn't he? So that he can prepare us and make us ready for this last part. God listened to Jonah, he comforted Jonah, but then he instructed Jonah. God saved the most important lesson for now. In chapter 1, Jonah learned of God's providence that you can't can't run away from the maker of the sea and the dry land. In chapter 2, Jonah learned that God is a God who pardons our sin when we call out to Him. In chapter 3, Jonah learned the lesson of God's power that we can experience when we obey Him. But now Jonah learns that God is a patient, loving God who longs to give second chances. God says to Jonah, I'm weeping and grieved over this city. Why aren't you? Both Jesus and Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem. When the Apostle Paul looked at Athens, he was greatly disturbed. But Jonah looked on Nineveh with anger and bitterness in his heart. And yet through all of this, God was patiently working throughout Jonah's journey to shape his heart, to instruct Jonah in the ways of grace. Timothy Keller Wrote this. He said, The mark of those who have been immersed in the grace of God is compassion and love, not contempt for others. And that is God's instruction for all of us. You know, the book ends with a cliffhanger, doesn't it? It's one of only two books in the Old Testament, maybe even the whole Bible, but I know in the Old Testament, Jonah and uh, Nahum are the only two books that end with a question. It ends with a question. It's open ended. It's, it's a cliffhanger, you know. Wait, tune, tune in next week to see what happens. It leaves us wondering how Jonah responded. But the point of this book isn't how Jonah responded. The point is, how are you and I going to respond? You see, we are Jonah. And God's final probing question is for us to answer. Psalm 139, 23, and 24 that was read this morning says, Search me, O God and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our attitude as we come to the end of this story. I pray that you would search your heart this morning and ask if you have experienced the grace of God, not just heard about it, not just learned about it, but have you experienced it transform your life? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I want you to know that God is patient. He is long-suffering. But eventually you have to make a decision whether you're going to experience God's grace now or God's wrath someday. The choice is yours. And I pray that today, if you haven't already, you would choose God's grace. Just as Scarlet chose God's grace, I pray you would too. Those of us who are Christians, I want to ask us to search our hearts. God is patient with us too. God is very patient with us. Amen? Amen. But let's not try His patience. Let's not quench His Spirit's work in our lives by consistently choosing to be like Jonah. I've got to tell you, sometimes I'm very guilty of being like Jonah. Will you allow the compassion and patience of God to shine through your life? You know, somebody asked me the other day, who wrote the story of Jonah? That's a great question. It doesn't tell us. Now, I've been saying the author of Jonah, the author of Jonah throughout this sermon series. But you know, I think that Jonah wrote Jonah. How else would the author of this book know what was going on in his heart and mind? How, who else would know what he prayed in the belly of that fish? And if Jonah wrote this, then he purposefully leaves the story open-ended. He doesn't tell us the choice that he made. Because I think he made the right choice. And I think he has written this book so that we would wrestle and struggle with the same issues he wrestled and struggled with. And that we would choose compassion and grace.